You're listening to The Toolbox, a podcast from Westwood Church's College Ministry designed to train, equip, and encourage college students and young adults in their walk with Jesus as they take the gospel to a fallen world. Welcome back to another episode of The Toolbox. I'm your host, Christian Barrett, and we are jumping into a the second part of our Q&A. So these are questions that you've asked, um, and we're giving you answers for um, the questions that you've raised over the past uh, few weeks and months. Um, so I'm joined today, so it's not just going to be me uh, answering your questions. I'm joined today by Pastor Ben Russell, who you have met before. Hey, everybody. Good to be with you again. That's great to have you back on um, to walk through some of these questions. Um, uh, asking questions is a good thing, and we want to encourage questions to be asked. Um, how will we learn if we don't ask? So That's right. um, we have some great questions. So let's jump in because we have a few and want to make the best of our time. So question number one, can I lose my salvation? Yeah, that's a big question, and I'm going to do my best to answer it in a concise way. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, what three passages have to say. So uh, let me start off by saying that the three passages that we're going to look at in no way uh, are an exhaustive list of verses that support the fact that you cannot lose your salvation. Uh, But for the sake of time, I feel that at least this is a good place to start. And so the first is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, and so a Christian is a new creation. And that's, the, that's kind of the title of this point. Let's look at this verse in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So a Christian is not simply an improved version of a person. A Christian is an entirely new creature. He is in Christ. And so for a Christian to lose his salvation, that new creation would have to be destroyed. So the second thing would be a Christian is redeemed. And I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. It says, For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so here the word redeemed refers to a purchase being made. A price that's being paid. Mm. We were purchased at the cost of Christ's death. And so for a Christian to lose salvation, God himself would have to revoke that purchase Mm. of the individual for whom he paid with the precious blood of Mm. Christ. And so the third that I want to look at is a Christian is marked by God and sealed with the Spirit. Mm. And we'll look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. It says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So at the moment of faith, the new believer is marked with the seal of the Spirit, who is promised to act as a deposit or uh, to guarantee the heavenly inheritance. Mm. And the end result is that God's glory is praised. So in order for a Christian to lose salvation, God would have to erase that mark, withdraw that spirit, uh, cancel the deposit, and break his promise. And as we know, God's not a promise breaker. Mm. And so a Christian cannot lose salvation. Most, if not all, of what the Bible says happens to us when we receive Christ would be invalidated if salvation could be lost. Salvation is the gift of God, and God's gifts are irrevocable, as Romans eleven twenty nine tells us. The Christian, as a new creation, can't be destroyed. 
The Christian, as redeemed, can't be unpurchased. And the Christian, marked by God and sealed by the Spirit, can't be erased or withdrawn. And so the truth of this doctrine should help believers have peace, knowing that their works couldn't earn their salvation, and likewise, their works can't lose their salvation. You know, that is something that's so comforting, knowing that this is a gift from God, and in order for me to lose it would mean he would have to take it away. That's exactly right. And I, I just love what you said, God does not take away. God, I, I think it's in Numbers, it says, God is not like a man that he would change his mind. That's right. And so it's just, it's such a, a peaceful um, aspect of the Christian life that comes from knowing that God will complete this work, that we will uh, keep the salvation that he has freely given to us. Um, do you have a resource for maybe, you know, this is just a this is just a couple minute blurb on this. What's a good resource sure. to further study this and have more peace about this issue? Yeah, and peace about this issue is an important peace to have. Uh, so certainly the Bible. I mean, we can look to that, of course. That's a given at all times. But uh, Saved Without Doubt by John MacArthur is a good resource that I would recommend to anybody who wants just more uh, information on the topic of can I lose my salvation? Yeah, that's great. All right, next question. Uh, even though I'm saved, I've, I've been declared righteous, am I still a sinner? All right, so in the New Testament, and this is a big question, in the New Testament, Christians carry different titles. Uh, and we see the title of elect, of faithful brothers, beloved, children of God, a holy nation. And many times, even in the intros of Paul's letters, we see the term saints. But there's no place that I'm aware of where the church, the people of God, are collectively called sinners. Moreover, an argument can be made that there is no instance in the New Testament where a believer is even referred to as a sinner. Now, the closest is Paul's reference to himself as the foremost or chief of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. But this context makes it plain, it's clear that Paul is using the terminology to refer to his old life as a persecutor of the church. He says, formally, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. So let's pause right there. This is important. I'm in no way saying that Christians don't sin. Mm. You know, This is the whole yeah. point of Romans chapter 7 where Paul laments the fact that he often does what he does not want to do. The entire Christian life is a struggle between the new self and the old self. And if you've lived long enough, you're going to know that the old self has his share of wins in that battle. But here is what I find interesting. Paul concludes that when he sins, it's not the real Paul doing it. Mm. He declares, uh, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's in chapter 7, verse 17. And then we see again in verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, you know, Paul's not building an excuse to get out of the responsibility of any sin that he has. Uh, he's not trying to reason that he has some kind of split personality. Paul makes it clear that it's not the new Paul that is sinning, but the old Paul. And this is key. His identity is bound up in the new man that he has become in Christ. So this helps to explain why Paul refers to believers as saints at the beginning of most of his letters. And he wants Christians to think of themselves in regard to their new natures, not their old. And I've heard it stated this way. Christians are saints who sometimes sin, 
not sinners who sometimes do right, Hmm. which is a huge distinction. So how does this nuance practically play out? Well, when our true identities are understood rightly, it can uh, actually affect the way we view our response to sin. You know, we might think the best way to appreciate the depth of our sin is to identify and think of ourselves in the category of sinners, but it can actually have the adverse or opposite effect. If we think of ourselves only as sinners, then our sins are something rather ordinary and inevitable. Mm. They're just a result of who we are. So, sure, we wish we didn't sin, but, you know, that's just what sinners do. And so instead, if we view ourselves as saints, then we'll begin to see our sin in a whole new light. If we really are saints or holy ones, then in a sense, our sin is even more heinous because it's being done by those who now have new natures and a new identity in Mm -hmm. Christ. And so we repent because these sins are, they're not ordinary. They're not expected. They're fundamentally contrary to who God has made us to be as saints. And it's this tension between our identities and our actions that is lost when we don't really think of ourselves with the identity of a saint. Mm. And so with all that being said, as Christians, we need to find a balance, just like everything. When rightly understood, uh, I do think that Christians can refer to themselves with the word sinner. However, I would encourage these listeners, I would encourage you, I would encourage myself not to lose sight of the fact that as a Christian, through the work of Jesus, our identity has changed and we are saints. Mm. I think one of the, the things that you said, that Christians are saints who sometimes sin. You know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like even culturally and cultural Christianity, we don't view it that way. We're, we're sinners who have just, oh, just by the the skin of our teeth we've made it into being saints now mm-hmm. and so i think that's just a such so much more practical in living the christian life and recognizing this is no longer what i'm defined by i'm defined by the grace of god which now declares me absolutely righteous. i think that's something that we need to focus more on and you know you're you're answering these questions and as you are and i look at what the next question is i'm so thankful that we have you here to answer these questions and that's kind of why i gave you some of the more theological ones um so this is a big one right this next question everyone wants to know how can i know god's will what is god's will for my life then so how can we know god's will yeah how can i know god's will is a huge question i've heard this question asked dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the last 15 20 years Uh, specifically by college students, and rightfully so, right? There's lots of decisions that are being made. This is just a a very important time in their life. And so it is important to know God's will. And if we're believers, we've received Christ by faith. We're his children. And so the good news is he desires to lead us in his way. Psalm uh, uh, Psalm chapter 143, verse 10. And so it's not some cosmic game of hide and seek where God's trying to hide his will from us. In fact, he's already given us many, many directions in the scriptures. You know, we can see in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, that we are to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. 1 Peter 2, verse 15 tells us we are to do good works. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 tells us it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And so something to remember, Christian, is to make sure that we are considering uh, these things, 
not, when when life comes up that we're not considering something that the Bible is telling us contrary to, uh, something that the Bible tells us not to do. So Christian, you get a call from a guy who asks you to go rob a bank with him. You know, you don't have to respond with, well, uh, you know, let me pray about that. Let me see if that's God's will. Well, Scripture forbids stealing, so you don't have to even pray about whether this is a good idea or not. You know that God's word says this is not a good thing. Don't do this. And so often we want to give, uh, we want God just to be very specific with us. We, we, we you know, um, even in who we're dating, there's the one, this concept of the one, or, you know, my dream job. There's only one job out there for me, where to work, where to live, who to marry, what car to buy. And this is the reason a lot of college students ask this question about God's will for their lives, because these are the questions they're faced with. Yeah. And so what's great is God allows us to make choices. Let me just say that again. God allows us to make choices. And if we are yielding to him, he has ways of preventing wrong choices. We see this in Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 7. And so uh, I would encourage your listeners as we walk with the Lord, obeying his word and relying on the Holy Spirit, we find that we are given the mind of Christ as 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us. And if we're walking closely with the Lord and truly desiring His will for our lives, God will place His desires in our hearts. And the key is wanting God's will, not our own. And this is so tough. Uh, So as Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And so I think there's a comfort there in knowing that you don't have to always have uh, an answer for every single thing. God does. And, you know, even for work, I've heard a lot of college students ask this, where where should I work? Should I take this job or this job? And, you know, many times within that question, neither job is necessarily a wrong decision. Mm -hmm. Get in one. Which one do you have a, a preference or a bent toward? And then when you get into that opportunity, glorify God with your words, mm. thoughts, and actions. Yeah. I think that's the, you know, we see in First Thessalonians, the will of God that you should be sanctified. And so our sanctification is bringing glory to God. And so uh, we see in First Corinthians, Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the right. glory of God. And so if you are in a place that you're miserable in, it's causing you to sin, you should probably leave that job. We wouldn't encourage someone to stay at a job that is That's right. causing you to sin. That is against the will of God. One of the ones that is, you know, we get the, the Ten Commandments. We get the law lay out for us, what it looks like. God wills for us not to steal, not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to covet. So all of those things. And then you get this, if you enjoy working at a pizza place and you love pizza and you're passionate about pizza, and it's not causing you to sin, you can do that to the glory of God. And that is in God's will for you. Absolutely. So I think that's a crucial question. Um, Another resource that you have in mind for that outside of, of course, the Holy Word of God. (laughs) The the given. Uh, You know, there's a resource called Can I Know God's Will by R.C. Sproul. And he has this resource within a a section of little books. We actually have these at uh, Westwood. So if anybody is here on any given Sunday, you can ask and we can get that resource for you as well. Uh, One book I remember reading when I was in college and I was asking that question of 
what will I do with the rest of my life? Am I going to marry the right person? Yeah. Those questions. No pressure. Uh, yeah, like only the two <laughs> of the biggest questions that you could ever ask. And so um, someone gave me the book Just Do Something by Kevin mm. DeYoung. Yes. That's also another uh, good resource of just do something. That's exactly <laughs> so, right. And walk in the will of God. So final question um, and a good one. And and I, I'm going to assume, as I think you would, that this is coming from a believer's perspective. Yes. Um, so question is, what happens when I die? Yeah. It's a great question. And again, we assume that's coming from a believer because if it's not, then the answer to this question looks very different, mm-hmm. right? And so when a Christian dies, their souls go immediately into the presence of God. And this is why Paul writes about being away from the body through death in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, and departing in death to be with Christ in Philippians chapter 1, mm-hmm. verse 23. Uh, in this time, we know that Christians are eternally joyful in the presence of God, and thus there is no need to pray for them. Uh, their faith has become sight, which is good news. But this, I will say, is one area where we differ with uh, Roman Catholics who hold to a different view, since they believe that Christians who die go to purgatory, uh, that their prayers can help them get out of purgatory sooner. So again, just to kind of make that distinction there, mm-hmm. but uh, what about our bodies? You know, For the believer who has died, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 23 through 24, that We wait for the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And so the day uh, when Christ returns will be the final step in the application of redemption. And on that day, their new and perfect bodies will be reunited with their souls. Can I stop you right there, Ben? Yes. What does a perfect body look like? Well, you know, we had this conversation in our household. Uh, mm-hmm. My wife has multiple sclerosis. And so here in this world, we experience the brokenness of disease, the brokenness of sickness, and, mm-hmm. and, and then of even death of the body. And so, again, Scripture refers to the perfect body. This is one of the things that we have hope in. This is why we keep our eyes on heaven and the glories that are to come. Because, again, a perfect body is, again, no more sickness, no more mm-hmm. pain, no more tears. A perfect body is essentially what our bodies were intended to be before the fall of man. Wow, wow that's amazing to, to look forward to that day, to know. Um, you mentioned earlier Romans 7 where Paul talks about the flesh, unable to, to not fight the flesh in this fallen state, um, to know that our sin will no longer have an impact on our bodies, that disease, sickness, these uh, degradations that have come along with the entrance of sin through the fall That's right. will be no more. That's, That's right. A, it's an amazing aspect, not just as we'll live in a world without that, but in ourselves as well. Um, what other aspects of uh, the resurrected body might there be um, that we can look forward to? Well, you know, uh, Christ was the first one with a resurrection mm-hmm. body. And so we look forward to his return because we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, 23, and 49, and then also Philippians chapter 3, verse 21 through 23, that all believers in Jesus will receive renewed resurrection bodies just like Jesus did. And so this is great news. Again, I mentioned my wife earlier. Uh, You know, so for our family working through this, you know, I'm able to, with her, even with myself, it's a comfort, a peace with my boys to say that it's not a matter of um, if mom will be healed. It's a matter of when, 
So no, we pray for healing, and in yeah. God willing, it would happen, and she would be freed from that on this life. But if not, if that's not the, if that's not God's will, if that's not the case, then she will be healed with a perfect body. Mm. And these new bodies will never wear out. They don't grow old. They're not again subject to disease or sickness. Basically, again, what we mentioned earlier, these bodies will be what God originally designed them to be before the fall of man, and we will live with Christ for eternity. And so my challenge would be uh, to think that fear of death is something that grips people from all walks of life, from time to time. Uh, but my question to the believer would be, do your fears come from the influence of the world around you? And if so, would the te- how would the teachings of Scripture, like we've just talked about, encourage you to deal with these fears? Because the Bible is certainly not silent on this topic. Mm, wow. And that's there's so much... Uh, hope and we especially in the book of Revelation we see John uh, seeing the heavenly host we see it in Isaiah uh, seeing the heavenly host worshiping uh, the lamb who was slain the lion of Judah the one who is yeah. worthy um, and so there's 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 just so much hope when we look at that mm-hmm. and it does kind of take that aspect of fear of death of oh, what will happen will I close my eyes and open them and they'll be there what is that going to look like so I just thank you for walking us through this um, and the hope that we have that death is not the end. That, That's right. Um, the shadow of death. death. The shadow of death. And, um, you know, the, the story in uh, The Pilgrim's Progress as he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death really articulates well and illustrates how the Christian life can look as we walk through these dark times. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I think death is probably more on the minds of people my age and in college than it's probably ever been before because of the pandemic that we're seeing. And so um, helpful question, helpful conversation to have on this. Um, What resources would you say you could point people to um, on the topic of heaven, on the topic of death? Sure. Uh, Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine book is always a good, uh, he's got the big systematic theology book and then he's got like the practical theology book. Mm-hmm. The Bible Doctrine book is right in the middle. It's, okay. it's very tangible. You can pick that up and work through it. And he really responds well to wow. what death looks like, what heaven looks like. Yeah. Uh, and another resource that I found extremely helpful in my ministry with dealing with uh people of all ages dealing with death is Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Just a fantastic resource. He does a great job of um, using Scripture to look at Heaven and what it will Mm -hmm. be like, but does a good job of not crossing any lines that Scripture wouldn't allow him Mm -hmm. to go to. Yeah, and that's that's the key thing, right? We can't speculate about things that we don't know or we're not given revelation about. And so um, the Word of God reveals to us what heaven will look like. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate about Heaven by Alcorn is that he stays in that framework. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's another short little book on heaven. It's called Heaven by Jonathan Edwards. And Mm -hmm. and it focuses on the aspect of heaven being all about a place of love Mm -hmm. um, and the being absorbed in the extreme love of the triune God as we worship him. And so it's a it's a cool little book, like really small. Um, if it was actually a normal size book, it'd probably only be ten to fifteen pages. Um, but it's a it's a pocket book, so it fits in your back pocket. Um, I encourage you to find that as well. Well, Ben, thank you for joining us. Thank you for walking through these questions. Uh, second timer, you're the first person to be on twice. Hey, on the all right, so, two timer. Yeah, so glad to have you. Um, you got anything else that you want to add to? 
the people out there? Uh, no, I, you know, I would just encourage those who are listening to continue asking these kind of questions, right? Uh, they're, they're not always uh, easy questions, but we can take faith and hope in knowing that the Bible mm. is not silent on these things. So yeah. keep asking questions and keep yeah. studying the Word. Yeah. And if you want to ask more questions, you can email those to me, christian at mywestwood.org. For more information about Westwood Church, service times, other ministries, um, and ways to get connected with us, you can go to mywestwood.org. Until next time, grace and peace.